0: Watch Podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch Podcast, we will be discussing an article from the November issue of the Beef Watch newsletter titled Common Mullen and Cheatgrass Control in Rangeland. To discuss this topic, I'm joined today by one of the co authors, Dr. Nevin Lawrence, who's the University of Nebraska Integrated Weed Management Specialist based at the Panhandle Research and Extension Center. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Lawrence. It's
1: great to be here
0: well dr. Lawrence before we talk about the focus of our article today which is on common mullein and cheatgrass control share with us a little more about yourself and your role with Nebraska
1: yeah I'm uh, as you stated earlier I'm the uh, I'm the weed specialist um, there's several of us in the state uh, and I I cover the panhandle of Nebraska so about a western the western part of the state I predominantly, I'd I'd say most of my work is actually in irrigated crops, but I also do quite a bit in in rangeland as well. I'm not a range scientist by training, um, but I I have experience uh, working um, in rangeland weed control. That's kind of how I got my start actually at controlling invasive weeds uh, with a backpack sprayer and a four-wheeler in uh, Wyoming, where I'm from, and uh, I've been with the university since 2016. Um, and uh, I, I work pretty closely with uh, Dr. Mitch Stevenson, our range land specialist here at the Panhandle Center as well. So when we have an opportunity to collaborate on a weed control issue and, and integrate maybe more than just, you know, seeing what herbicide works best, but looking into how it might, uh, controlling weed might involve grazing or, or the, the health of the range system, um, we, we collaborate quite a bit on some different projects.
0: In the article, you talk about two weeds in particular that I think are really challenging to producers in Western Nebraska. The first one is common mullein, and this is one that I think is kind of creeping up on folks. I think in the last five to seven years has really exploded in terms of its prevalence in the panhandle. I'm seeing it now uh, pretty extensively around right of ways uh, in CRP. Share with us a little about common mullein and why it's starting to become an issue on rangeland and pasture?
1: Yeah, so common mullen, um, it's it's an invasive weed. It's not native to the U.S., uh, it, and it's been a it's been a high priority weed for a lot of the neighboring states for quite a while, Colorado, Montana, uh, and in Wyoming. And it's it's sort of moving east from from those areas. And like a lot of invasive weeds that we deal with, it tends to take a foothold um, in our more disturbed areas. And that's usually along right-of-ways. Uh, and so side of the road where you might have uh, quite a bit of erosion or they've been doing some work and they're, they're tearing up the ground a little bit, uh, those seeds are going to gain a foothold. But from those right-of-ways, uh, the next place we usually see it spread is uh, into uh, CRP. Um, when they, they stop farming that area and they're trying to keep it into a reserve program. Uh, Sometimes the mullin's going to take a foothold there. Uh, And then we're also starting to see uh, spread a little bit into rangeland as well. And uh, this is a pretty typical history for a lot of our invasive weeds, as far as where it moves from and uh, from, from the disturbed right-of-ways into um, CRP and then into rangeland. And so it's just going that classical route of, of becoming more common and I don't think it's something that's going to be going away anytime soon. So the, the more ranchers and uh, other landowners are aware of it and the more they know about its biology control, the better off they're going to be.
0: Let's talk a little more about this and plant. I think for me, some things that get my attention about it is first how easily it establishes. Uh, I found it growing in piles of rock. I mean, where nothing else is growing. it's It's a little sobering to me how easily it can get established and then Second, I think, is the how this plant really nothing will graze it or utilize it. Sheep, goats won't uh, graze common mullein or utilize it. And then I think also just it has a, a velvety or hairy leaf. And so getting herbicide contact on this plant uh, can be challenging as well. And then I think the other thing for me is how prevalent the seed production is and how long the seed can still be viable in the soil. Uh, give some perspective from you're working with this plant, some of the challenges it presents.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, like a lot of our, our weed issues, those seeds last a long time in the soil. Some seeds, uh, not necessarily mulling, but some seeds can be viable for up to, you know, 50 years or longer in, in the soil. And so we're, we're talking about a generational issue. You You have a patch to control the idea of going in there one year, getting really good control and then just leaving it you know, and and it's taken care of that. That doesn't really happen with most of our weed species. It's something that's going to take a long time to manage, get a, get a, get a handle on. The way common mulle establishes is it germinates in the spring. It's a, it's a biannual. So it, it gonna, it comes up that first year, germinates in spring, spends that first year in a vegetative growth form, uh, doesn't produce seeds. And then it, in the winter, it dies back down to the crown and then comes back up in the, next year and then it moves into the vegetative phase where it's gonna bolt, produce flowering structures and eventually seeds. And the common feature, as you mentioned, with common mullen is just this real velvety soft leaf. It's, it's hard to confuse with anything else. It's a large leaf um, and it, it feels like velvet. It's a very, very soft plant. And then when it bolts, it's also, it's hard not to see it. It's a very distinct, just very long cone structure coming out of that bolting plant it's sometimes it can be pretty hard to see it in that first year, but if you see it the second year, you're not gonna miss it. And that's generally what we see when we are driving along the roadside and you can you know, spot it at 70 miles an hour on the highway. And when you go out to a patch of it uh, in the second year and you're seeing those seeds being produced, if you look down the ground, even if there's quite a bit of uh, grass coverage or other vegetation there, you, know, you dig around, you'll see how, just how many of those first year vegetative plants there are um, in that, that area.
0: Well, you and also Mitch have been working on looking at what are some herbicide options that producers might consider using on common mullein and rangeland. Uh, share with us some of the work you've done and and what are some of your initial observations?
1: Yeah, uh, we, we've we been um, contacted by quite a few producers in the past few years asking, you know, what to use. And it's usually not a question of, uh, you know, they, they're going to go out for the first time and spray it. A lot of times I'm getting uh, calls because they've already tried to apply something and it hasn't worked. And there's been a, a few different herbicides that they've, they've contacted me about, about just not having activity on the common mullein. And one of the more striking things I've, I've heard from some of these is I've had people that have applied it as late as July. Uh, they, they might have someone fly an airplane on or, or control or spray it for them. And they're just not seeing the activity. And that application is occurring with an herbicide, which is labeled with it. And that i seen in the research has pretty good control of it. So uh, in in answering all these calls, usually my recommendation is to spray earlier, but uh, you know, we wanted to go out and actually test that. So what we decided to do is we found a cooperator that had a very consistent stand, and that's what we really need to put out these trials, is we need every plot that we put out that have a pretty good density of mullein. So we found a pretty high population and it's a site where they, they sprayed herbicides uh, the, the past few years and just really haven't seen the control that they wanted. So uh, we went out with a number of different herbicides. We actually used seven different herbicide products. And then we applied that both with NIS and then methylated seed oil or crop oil concentrate. And and the reason for including the crop oil concentrate is with how fuzzy those leaves are. Um, there's, there's been some concern that we need an oil to penetrate that leaf structure and get the herbicide in there. The, what we did though with these applications is we applied all these herbicides as early as we could. So this occurred in a late April and that's really the best time to control this because you're going to be able to get the newly germinated plants that are in their first year but you can also get the second year plants before they bolt and move in that reproductive phase. And when you read the herbicide product labels that are labeled for common mullein, they all specify it, that the timing is best when the, before the plants bolt. And so if the plants have already bolted, your chance of controlling it really goes down. Uh, And what we found is basically everything controlled the common molin. We had two products that weren't labeled for common molin. That was 2,4-D and Dicamba. And we included those two products because they're they're often used in um, uh, premixes. So you might have a product that, let's say, has... Milestone or amino 240 mixed together, and so we wanted to see, you know, how much that 240 is contributing, or it might have dicamba in the premix. And the 240 didn't work that well, which was not surprising to us. But even the dicamba, which is not labeled for common mullen, did a really good job on it. And what it came down to is timing. So. If you have tried to spray common mold in the past and you haven't got the control you've been hoping for, looking at what time of the year you applied it is, is probably the first thing I'd recommend doing. And similarly, if you're going to control a patch and you haven't sprayed it previously, you really need to look into what time of the year you're applying that herbicide. And that's a lot of times far more critical than what herbicide you're using. Uh, instead, you want to focus on what, what time of the year you're applying that.
0: Nevin, as we think about pasture and rangeland, sometimes there can be quite a bit of residual forage out there from past year's growth. How does this application in early April work in that kind of scenario to make sure we get good uh, solution contact with those weeds? So uh,
1: with the exception of actually 2,4-D and dicamba, almost every other product that's going to be labeled for common mold control. And, and there's quite a few. There's uh, Tordon, Milestone, uh, Method, Escort, Tellar, Grasland, Grazon Next, Duracore, Mesa View, Chaparral, Cimarron, Pastora. Um, I'm probably forgetting a few. All these products have both what they call foliar and soil activity. You know, it absorbs through the leaf, but it also, if some of that herbicide gets onto the soil, it's going to stay in the soil for some amount of time. And the plant's going to be able to pull that herbicide out of the soil. So even if you have a pretty dense vegetative uh, ground, let's say you have a mix of both broadleaf plants and also grass species, you're gonna be able to still get activity from that soil application if you make it a timely application.
0: So you mentioned hitting these early in the spring, but for many folks, I think they get to a scenario where they get to June or July and all of a sudden this common molens bolting uh, based on what you said today, that might be a little late to be applying some of these herbicides. What do I do if I find myself in that kind of scenario?
1: So the the best time, in my opinion, to control this for for biennial weed is going to be in the spring. But we've also and we didn't do this in this current uh, experiment that we wrote up for for Beef Watch. But another good time to apply for good activity is going to be in the fall as well. And so you're going to want to apply that uh, before we have any hard freezes, um, because once the plant goes dormant and shuts down for the year, it's not going to absorb herbicides. But another good option is to apply in the fall and you'll also get good activity. But what you won't do is control any of those plants which have already set seed. And so, you know, when when you're making this application, you're almost always going to have both first year plants and second year plants. And making that application either in, the, let's say, the middle of the summer or in the fall, uh, you, you got a good shot at actually getting those first-year plants, but you're going to miss those second-year plants, and they're likely already have gone to seed. And, and so you can still get good control by spraying at a different time, but um, you're going to miss probably half the, half the plants out in the field. The other thing to consider is herbicides work best when the plants they're targeting are healthy, and so in the spring there's usually uh, pretty good moisture in the soil, um, the plants are doing well, the, the, the weeds are healthy, and they're going to readily absor- absorb that herbicide and uh, the herbicide is going to have pretty good activity. Once you start getting into the, the uh, mid-summer, not only are you getting into a situation where the plants may have already bolted and you're going to have less herbicidal activity, but the plants might be stressed. And when they're stressed, they, they don't photosynthesize as much. They, they move into a state where they're gonna be taking up less water from the soil because there's less water available. And in those situations, the herbicide doesn't work as well. And so uh, same thing with the fall application. If you've had a really dry summer, all summer, you haven't had rain in a few months, and, uh, or at least a substantial rain in a few months, and you make this fall application, but the soil's dry, the plants are stressed, the grass is brown, you still might have a situation where that herbicide is just not going to have as much activity as it would have if conditions were better.
0: Let's switch gears here a little bit and move to cheatgrass. Uh, Cheatgrass is one that's been around for a long time and it is in many parts of the panhandle pretty prevalent. Uh, You and Mitch have been doing some work looking at both grazing and integrating that with some herbicide application update us on kind of what you're finding there and and what are some herbicide options that are available to producers that maybe haven't been in the past.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, I can't speak too much on the grazing work. That's mostly been Mitch doing that, but we've been, uh, you know, looking into it as well. Uh, the grazing is is something though that has been recommended as a control option. And at least in my opinion, you're not really going to, um, you're not gonna eliminate cheatgrass uh, through grazing, but you can reduce seed production. And if you graze it at the right time of the year, it, it can actually be a pretty good uh, forage. And so a lot of the work that Mitch is doing is trying to figure out when to prioritize certain um, pastures that may have different levels of cheatgrass infestation based on how that cheatgrass is staged at that particular time of the year. But as far as herbicides go, the, the two long long-standing options that we've had have been uh, herbicide uh, Plateau, which is a Mazapic, and also uh, rimsulfuron. And those are two herbicides we've had for a pretty long time. Both uh, rimsulfuron and Mazapic can have pretty good activity on cheatgrass. We're talking uh, being able to control, you know, maybe 90% of the plants that are present. But we've, we've found that they, there's a couple issues with those two herbicides. One of them is, is they can injure some desirable grasses. It really depends on what's present in that that pasture. Uh, The other issue is the control that I've observed from those two products is pretty variable from year to year. If all the conditions really line up, you're you're talking great control, but uh, in some years we've seen as little as, you know, instead of a a 90%, we're we're looking at 30 or 40% control just based on when you apply that herbicide and what the weather conditions are at that time. So there's a new product though that just uh, became available this year called Rejuvra. It's made by Bayer. And it doesn't work like a traditional um, cheatgrass herbicide. It, it has no control of cheatgrass once the cheatgrass is uh, germinated. So if you will go out into a patch of cheatgrass and apply it, it's it's really going to look like it didn't do anything. But what the rejuvra does do is it stays in the soil for a very long time and it controls cheatgrass as it uh, germinates and emerges from the soil. And so if uh, you're familiar with uh, crop production, we have a lot of what we call pre-emergent herbicides that you're going to put out uh, either right before or right after you plant a crop. And then they're con- going to control um, weeds that germinate for the next anywhere from, you know, four to eight weeks into the season. Well, with Rejuvra, at the rates that uh, we've used, we're, we're seeing up to two years of uh, cheatgrass control from one application. It, depending on when you apply that, though, it, it's hard to get it out there at a time that cheatgrass isn't up. So usually you have to mix it either with uh, rim sulfurum or or plateau or you can even uh, apply it with glyphosate. Um, and, and to control the cheatgrass, but then you get this residual uh, control from it. And one thing about cheatgrass is the seed isn't that long lived in the soil, it it's only viable, majority of the seeds only viable for uh, about two years. And so the idea is if you can get this product out there, you can uh, potentially deplete the uh, cheatgrass from the soil seed bank and, and really make some, some uh, gains on how much cheatgrass seeds available in the soil for, for the next several
0: years. Another herbicide that you mentioned in the article is Esplanada.
1: Yeah, and, and Esplanade, esplanada uh, or Esplanada, i am not actually uh, sure on that one. It's—it's uh, it's a I think it's a—it's a, a Spanish word for uh, uh, clear pasture, I believe. But they're—they're they're the same product. Uh, I should—I should, I should uh, put a quick, uh, quick caveat on that. They're not—they're—they're they're different products, uh, but they have the same active ingredient, the same concentration. So if you apply five ounces of, of um, Rejuvra. It's the same thing as five ounces esplanade. Esplanade though is marketed for uh, industrial sites, bare ground right ways and it doesn't it hasn't had uh, studies done to see what the uh, effect of it is for uh, feeding to cattle which you need if you're going to play it on range. And Rejuvra is, is basically the same product except for it's been approved um, by the regulatory agencies for use in grazed land. So if you spray it and then you have cattle graze that land, um, you know, a week later, there's, there's no um, negative impacts on, on the cattle. So for that reason, it is labeled in rangeland situations while the other product is not labeled uh, in in ranger pasture.
0: When we think about weed control, one of the challenges that foremost comes to folks' mind is the cost. Give some perspective on the cost of these herbicides and how that might play into thinking about their use on rangeland.
1: Yeah, and that, that's sort of the biggest drawback we're seeing right now through Juvra is um, some of the research on it has, has shown pretty good results. So if you, if you apply it in a mixed stand where you have a little bit of grass and you have a lot of desirable plants, a lot of times it's gonna control that cheatgrass for, for you know up to two years, but you're also gonna see this explosion of uh, desirable forbs and perennial black grasses and really see a, a, a kind of a restoration of that rangeland. And that's, a, that's we, we haven't observed that in our study sites only because we don't have much else in the seed bank other than the cheatgrass, but in, in some mixed areas in other parts of the country where they have uh, this mix of different species, they've actually seen this return of uh, more desirable plants to the, the to that pasture, or that rangeland, uh, and that sounds great. Uh, the The price so for it is is quite a bit more. So plateau, depending on your rate, you're looking at six to nine dollars an acre for the product, not including uh, application costs. Where the rejuvena, you're you're looking at uh, up to forty two dollars an acre for the product, which is quite a bit more. The difference is though, you're going to get a lot more control from the rejuva. We've seen it in all of our studies far outperform the plateau or rim sulfuron alone. It's done quite a bit better of a job, but you're looking at more cost. And, and that's kind of the next step for us is to figure out the economics of it. Um, when you're talking about removing cheatgrass from, the, from a pasture, um, you know, is that gonna pay for it uh, as far as greater product production? Uh, more cows per acre, um, better yields. It, it certainly probably is not, but there's other costs associated with that or, or other economics. Uh, you know, there's evidence that reducing cheatgrass is going to reduce your wildfire risk. It, it may lead to uh, more diverse plant community, which may have downstream impacts on wildlife and, and other sort of, Factors not related to um, your production, um, it could even have impact on your the value of that land, but it's it's from a simple number of cows per acre, it's probably not going to uh, have the same, it's not going to be worth that cost, but there's a lot more into uh, economics than just the production cost for it.
0: Anything else on these two invasive species that you think would be valuable for rangeland managers to know and utilize?
1: Yeah, for, for both species, um, we're, we're continuing doing a lot of work on them. We're, we're planning on uh, continuing research for cheatgrass and uh, common mullein. Um The reason why we're doing the research with cheatgrass and common mullein is we get a lot of questions about cheatgrass and common molen. This is an example of a Nebraska Extension trying to, to help growers with what their needs are. And if you've got questions or there's, there's something you're not seeing addressed in this research, feel free to reach out to me, call me, and we'll try to see if we can either get you the answer or this might become a topic that we may do some more intensive research with. And we're also always looking for uh, locations to put out studies if you've got Um, a site that has a good population of a certain weed you've been struggling with, uh, feel free to let me know. And if we can make it work, we'll we'll be happy to put out a a comparison, of different products on your place and
0: and see if we can find a good solution for you. Well, thanks again for joining me today, Dr. Lawrence. Thank you for inviting me. Well, for more information on the topic that was discussed in today's Beef Watch podcast, I'd encourage you to visit the beef.unl.edu website. Again, this is from the November issue of the Beef Watch newsletter.